Listening to the book of Ezekiel, prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 8 and following. Last time we read the whole of 1 Kings 8, 66 verses, and not to be outdone by that, we come to Ezekiel now, which is a section of four chapters. I will not read it all this evening. I'd like to read chapter 8 and chapter 9 up to verse 7. So 8, 1 through 9, 7, but the whole of 8, 9, 10, and 11, we go together. And my voice is a little weak, so I might need the microphone bumped up a little bit here to go through all of this, but Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. These were men who were carried off captive from Jerusalem before Jerusalem was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem and set their own king in place, or one of the Jews, a puppet king, but they had carried away leading citizens from Jerusalem and the king and the royal family and so forth. And and Ezekiel was deported. So Ezekiel is in captivity. Jerusalem still stands, but it's not a good time. In fact, at the end of Second Chronicles, the last chapter, 36, you can read how even Zedekiah, who is, who is Nebuchadnezzar's uh, puppet king, he, he's not leading God's people in righteousness. They're living in idolatry. Uh, all the abominations of the nations are defiling the temple. And so Ezekiel is given a vision of Jerusalem here. Um, I think it's, many people think it's symbolic what's reported here in Jerusalem, but it's not that it's beyond what was happening. They were defiling God's temple, literally. Uh, Ezekiel 8, verse 1, God's word. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house... This is in uh, Chaldea or Babylon where he is. As I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward fire, and from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, Lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations of the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again. You will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. And in their midst there stood 
J. Azaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? For they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tamaz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, and you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about, seven, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a rider's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the rider's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others he said in my hearing, go after him through this city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary." So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. Good news and bad news follows, but we'll stop our scripture reading there and let's offer up a prayer before we begin to explore this together. Oh God in heaven, we bow before you. You, the Holy One, the Mighty One. We see in the sin of Israel ourselves, and we see in your glory and grace, your mercies to your people throughout the ages, but especially in the coming of the Lord Jesus. Visit us tonight, Lord, and give us humble hearts before you, the Almighty God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we've been tracing now the uh, wonder of God coming to dwell among us the glory story, right, of, of God's presence, his glory, his manifested presence with his people. And we're moving towards seeing that God's glory is returning to a people who have failed God, and it's actually coming to us in a way that will 
transcend what Adam and Eve had. What we get in the end through redemption is greater than what Adam and Eve possessed in the garden. Now, the story leading to that eternal glory is a long story, isn't it? And all along the way, as you you read through scriptures from Genesis to the end, God's revealing our sinfulness. He's revealing our need. We're discovering things about us that horrify us, but we're also seeing the greatness of God's grace, the greatness of his faithfulness to the covenant, the, the wonders of his mercies. And we're watching in all this, God getting everything ready for the coming of his son. So we maybe put out Christmas directions and get things ready for Christmas celebrations. We can be reminded that that God took centuries to prepare for Christmas. Centuries, literally, to prepare for the coming of his son. Now, in our first sermon in this series, we looked at Exodus 40, where, where God was pleased to have his tabernacle built and then to indwell with the glory cloud and to fill the place up so that no one could enter it. And then last time we looked at 1 Kings 8, that long chapter where God moves now from a tent to a permanent dwelling, the temple, and he fills it with his glory. And do you remember, perhaps, in that long chapter we read, that much of it was Solomon's prayer, and Solomon's prayer was so striking because instead of praying about all that we're going to do for God, Solomon's prayer was consumed with Lord when we sin against you, when we fail you. And whatever those listeners on that day when Solomon prayed that, whatever they, they might have imagined as they hear their king praying about if we sin in this way and if we sin in that way, did any of them, could any of them imagine that we would sin against God in this way? That the very temple that God so graciously had built would be filled with idolatry? would so offend God's glory that it would drive God right out of his temple. The passage we read tonight is, is the darkest time in Israel's history. Darkest days. Nebuchadnezzar's already captured Jerusalem and he will return in a few years to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple and carry off everything from the temple and never will the ark be seen again. This is the fall of the church in the Old Testament. And yet in the midst of God's glory being driven out of the temple, there's hope. There's hope. That's what we see tonight. Let's consider how God's glory is offended and driven out, and yet he gives his people hope. We'll look at the glory offended, the glory departing, and the glory that gives us hope. God's glory offended, God's glory departs, God's glory gives hope. Those three points. Well, Ezekiel's been in captivity for a bit now, and uh, as I said, Nebuchadnezzar had installed Zedekiah, Jehoiachin, that last king who was carried off, his uncle as the ruler in Judah, and these people who have been transported from Jerusalem to Babylonia, they're living in captivity in the hope that they might soon get to go back home, in the hope that that, that, there's, that Jerusalem will stand and that Jerusalem will be spared any disaster and, and that we can soon go home and everything will be like it was. In fact, there were false prophets who were, who were suggesting these things to God's people. But Ezekiel here has to warn the people in Babylon that something much worse is about to happen. God has already warned in Ezekiel here about coming destruction, the city being besieged, and pestilence, and hunger, and sword, and so forth, because the Lord is offended. And the works of prophets and priests can't stop this, and, and the government doesn't know what to do. God is coming. But is it, is it for real? 
Could it be averted? Is it really this bad? Does God have to act so dramatically? Well, one day, Ezekiel is in his house here in captivity. And the elders have come by for a visit, having an elders meeting in Ezekiel's house. And you can imagine the elders would like to know what's going on in Jerusalem. News takes so long to get over there to, to Babylon. How is it back in Jerusalem? Maybe Ezekiel himself was longing, wished he could see Jerusalem, what's going on in Jerusalem. And as the elders are in his house, Ezekiel is given a vision. and He's transported by the Spirit of God in a vision, not physically, but in a vision, back to Jerusalem. And he's given a tour. He's given a tour of the temple. Now you see, as long as Jerusalem stands, then the people in captivity are exiles who can look forward to going home. But if Jerusalem falls, then, well, then they're homeless. There's no home back there in Jerusalem for them. And so this is very, very important to them. Ezekiel's taken on this tour of Jerusalem, and he says in verse 4 that he beholds the glory of the God of Israel. It was there. The magnificence of God was there. He's aware of the awesome glory of God, but then verse 5, the Lord says to him, Son of man, lift your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was the image of jealousy in the entrance. What a terrible disappointment. What a horrible thing. His stomach must have sank to the ground that in God's temple... By the north gate there is this image of jealousy, probably a Canaanite Asherah pole, the goddess of love. King Manasseh back in 2 Kings 21 had actually put such a thing in the temple. And then Josiah, remember when he reformed the temple, when he had heard God's law, the book of the law was found. He threw out all those idolatrous things out of God's temple. But it's the image of jealousy. God had said in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here's the image provoking God to jealousy. The false lover is brought right into God's own house, as it were, flaunting it before God's face. And so God wants the exiles to see that there's no possibility that God can just overlook this. They're forcing God to act with vengeance and defend his own glory, defend his own worship. Do they expect that God, the jealous God, can say, you know, that's fine, we're going to share the temple. There's room for both of us, for your idol gods and for me. Of course not. God says to Ezekiel, verse 6, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abomination of the house of Israel commits here to make me go away from my sanctuary. They are driving me out of my house. They are evicting me from my house. I cannot remain here under these conditions. God will have to renounce his own temple. It's been polluted. It's been defiled. What a God we serve. He's not a trivial God. He's not a small God. He doesn't make peace with idolatry. And then it's not just there, but, but God gives Ezekiel a further tour. And there's, there's idolatry everywhere, in every place. You know, the book of Ephesians reminds us that 
that Christians have unity, right? If you're in Christ, there's one Lord, one faith, there's one baptism. There's a unity. But if you are outside of Christ, there's not a unity. There's a, a multitude of gods. For everyone outside of Jesus Christ, every person has a different God. And, and Satan is happy to, to, to manufacture that God for everyone who wants one, according to your own vain imagination. And so throughout the temple, there's not unity, but there's idolatry everywhere. Verse 6b Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court. When I looked, there was a hole in the wall. So he digs through, he goes in, he discovers a sort of secret room, and what's there? Every sort of creeping thing is on the walls. Paintings or reliefs of all kinds of insects, animals, vermin. Probably the Egyptian worship of animals or half man, half animal. And what's worse are 70 elders there bowed in worship and led by Jaazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Do you remember who Shaphan was? Shaphan was the one who, when they discovered the book of the law in the temple, he read it to Josiah. When Josiah the king heard it, he tore his clothes And there was reformation, there was revival. But now here's a son of Shaphan, and he's leading them in the worship of idols. And do you remember 70 elders? In Exodus chapter 24, at Mount Sinai, a covenant is made with God, and Aaron and Moses and 70 elders go up the mountain, and the elders get to see God, as it were, from below, the pavement under his feet, And they get to eat with God, a covenant meal. But now we've got 70 elders who are engaged in apparently Egyptian worship. The former 70 elders were worshiping after God delivered them from Egypt and set them free from slavery. This group of elders is taking God's people right back to slavery, right back to the old ways, to the Egyptian worship that God had delivered them from. And they say in verse 12, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. They believe the Lord won't help them. And so they're turning to their old masters. And yet God sees everything. And still the tour of the temple is not over. Then verse 13, he said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations. He brought me to the door of the north gate and he sees the women sitting there weeping for Tammuz. We don't know too much about Tammuz, but was a fertility god who, like the plants, died in the dry time and came to life again in the spring. And so part of the ritual worship was to weep for the death of Tammuz when he goes to the underworld until he, he returns. Weeping, part of, part of the ritual worship of Tammuz. Instead of worshiping the living God who never dies, worshiping his Messiah who will come and die and rise from the dead and and never die again, they worship a God who dies and comes back to life. Someone compared it to the cult of daytime television. Weeping with the soap operas. 
of the rise and fall of the love life. I think you compare it to the worship of sports and your team winning and losing. Instead of worshiping the living God who's always the same, always faithful to his people. And still there's more. Verse 15, then he, he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you'll see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there in the place where the priests would normally be were 25 men with their backs to the temple and their, their faces to the east worshiping the sun. Worshiping the sun. Instead of turn to the temple, crying out to God for mercy, we have sinned. We've seen your judgments. Nebuchadnezzar has come against us. Instead of that, they're worshiping the sun. And so what we have here is quite a group here of false gods, a sort of international false religion. You've heard of IHOP, International House of Pancakes. Well, this is the International House of, of Pagan Worship. You've You've got the Asher pole of the Canaanites. You've got the, the images on the walls, the animals. You've got the Egyptian worship. You've got the cult of Tammuz, which was a Babylonian thing. You've got the worship of the sun, which was prevalent throughout the ancient Near East. And you've got the elders worshiping. You, you, you've got the priests worshiping. You've got the women weeping. You've got the whole people of Jerusalem at the Asherah pole. What a disaster. What a mess. When God's people turn from his glory, then, then they are all divided in every direction in various idols. There's no unity outside of Christ Jesus. There's no unity in the secular world. People look in every direction for some God who will save them. When God reveals here how dark our hearts are apart from his saving grace, we by nature are, are idolaters. Our hearts, our minds are factories of idols, as it's been said. We just, we just invent them, we make them, we, we turn them out one after another. Whenever we turn away from God as our confidence, God as our trust, God as our hope, then we look elsewhere. And what is God to do? Can God make peace with idolatry? Can God deny his own glory? Can God stop being jealous? Well, then God wouldn't be God anymore, would he? If God tolerates idolatry, then God is no longer God. So what will happen? We'll look secondly tonight at the departure of God's glory. Have you seen what they do? They're driving me from my sanctuary, the Lord says. Very fundamental principle of, of true biblical religion is the principle of exclusive devotion. You can have no other gods before me, God says. No other gods in my presence. If you would have me, it's only me. Only me. That's why God often in the Bible compares his covenant relationship to a marriage. You can only be married to one person. You, you can't have multiple wives, though some patriarchs wrongly did. Here Israel's forgotten the very reason for the temple's existence. It was to be filled with God's glory. With God's glory. With Jehovah. With his presence. And instead, they're, they're driving them out to make room for their idols. And so they're, they're trading, really. They're trading the glory of the Lord for these images. And this is, 
This is a, a bad trade. It's always a bad exchange to give up the glory of God for idols. And so judgment will come. Chapter 9, God calls forth these executioners and slaughter will begin at the very temple of God. God's judgment will come. And then God's glory is going to be removed from where it sits above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. And it's going to move away on the cherubim chariot. The, the, Ezekiel 1 has a vision of the, the whirling wheels with the cherubim that stand beside him. And it's this, it's this idea of a, of, a, of a chariot upon which Jehovah rides. And it reappears here now in these chapters. And so if you have your Bible with me, I want to point four passages to, to you here as we watch the glory, the glory of the Lord uh, depart Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 9 of Ezekiel, verse 3, we read that. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. So it moves to the threshold of the temple. It's preparing to depart. Then you go to chapter 10, at verse 3. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. So now the glory is pausing there. The cherubim chariot is pausing. And then chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. So now God's deserted his temple. And then chapter 11, come to verses 22 and 23. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. What an absolute reversal, right, of what we saw last time, that the temple is built and the glory of God comes down and fills the temple. And God says, I will dwell with my people. And now the glory of God is on the move, on his cherubim chariot, Moving and moving and moving. And as you go through these chapters, it's, it's moving very methodically and slowly, isn't it? It rises. It goes to the temple threshold. It pauses. God, God is hesitantly moving out, isn't he? He's not in a hurry to leave his people. This, this doesn't delight God. God is being evicted from his own house. Nothing is worse than to lose God's presence. And yet this is what's happening, God says. You see, why this has to be said, why Ezekiel needs to preach this, is because the people in Jerusalem, even the people in exile, had, had thought, we have the temple. Remember this, Jeremiah? He says to God's people, you say, the temple, the temple, the temple. And God says, don't trust in those lying words. But they were saying, look, we've got the temple. God's not going to forsake us. We can't be destroyed. We have God's house. And God's saying, 
You may have a building, but you don't hold me hostage. You don't control my presence. You don't take me captive to sit here bound up while you worship your idols. I'm Jehovah. I'm the Lord. Here's my mighty army. Here are my cherubim, the guardians of my throne. If you will not bow down to me alone, then I will depart. And yet, even these judgments of God are part of God's way of realizing his plan of salvation. Just as Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, being expelled from the Lord, was part of the plan of bringing full redemption, so it is here. This actually is a great mercy of God because he's teaching his people not to fix their hope on a building or on a city, but to hope in the Lord. We're all tempted, aren't we, to, to put our hope in the trappings of religion. The trappings of religion. The outwards and the externals. And if we have these, we must have God. God says true religion is to bow before me. And to obey my word. Chapter 10. One who may well be the pre-incarnate Christ told to take burning coals from among the cherubim, chapter 10, verse 2. Those coals to be poured out upon the city. The city will be destroyed. And in chapter 11, Ezekiel has to rebuke some men who think that they're safe in the city. The city is the cauldron. We are the meat. 11 verse 3, we're safe here. We can't lose because we have God's house. But little did they know it would be destroyed. In fact, the temple gets destroyed in year 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. And when the temple gets rebuilt after the captivity, then remember it gets destroyed 40 years after Jesus in the year AD 70 by the Romans. In both cases, it's the same. It's because of of rebellion, apostasy, of people who will not have the Lord alone. And these prophecies are still relevant tonight, aren't they? Still relevant tonight. Read through the letters to the churches of Asia Minor. One of the elders read for devotions at our last meeting from Revelation chapter 2, first letter to the church in Ephesus. And and God says, "You've, you've lost, you've left your first love. And if you don't repent, I will take your lampstand and remove it. Some churches have become nothing but synagogues of Satan. They're not assemblies where God is known in his glory and grace. Dark days when the glory of God departs. What a horrible thing. Son of man, have you seen this? Can you believe my people would do this? Yet in the midst of that, there's hope. And that's the final thing we look at tonight, the hope for God's people. In chapter 9, there were the executioners we read about. But there was one, chapter 9, verse 2b, one man among them clothed with linen had a writer's inkhorn at his side. Some take this to be the Son of God, the Christ. 
And he's told to go and to mark those. Verse 4, go through the city, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. Well, that's good news. There's some who sigh and cry, who grieve over this idolatry. And God says, mark them with my protection. Remember the Passover? You had to mark your home with the blood that the angel of death would pass over. Now God's saying, mark these. Comes back in the book of Revelation, doesn't it? In chapter 7, when, when some are to be sealed before destruction comes, they're to be sealed, these of the Lord. They might be protected from God's wrath and judgment. It's a grace and a mercy. But a second mercy that we discover in all of this are the intercessions of Ezekiel. I cut off our scripture reading right before Ezekiel burst forth into prayer. Ezekiel 9 verse 8. Right after God's saying to kill these people and to stack them up in the temple. Then Ezekiel 9 verse 8. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? So often the case, isn't it? Those who are to be sort of mediators for God's people, who are standing between God and his people as the prophets did to bring the word. When they hear God's judgments, they, they break out in intercession. Remember Moses? Moses crying out for God's people. Amos and Jeremiah and now Ezekiel. Ezekiel will pray again in chapter 11. In chapter 11, he's rebuking God's people in verse 13, Ezekiel eleven thirteen. Now it happened while I was prophesying that Palatiah, the son of Beniah, died. Then I fell on my face and cried with a loud cry and said, Oh, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? Ezekiel pleading for God's people, pleading that he'll save a people, that he'll have a church. How much greater is Christ's intercession in heaven tonight? He is also with us in the flesh, like the prophets were who are one with God's people. Christ is one with us. And he intercedes now on the basis of a completed atonement. His blood has been shed, our sin has been paid for, and he is our intercessor in heaven. God will not lose his remnant. But there's a third voice of hope here in chapter 11, verse 16. Chapter 11, verse 16 Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Now that word comes because some of these back in Jerusalem were saying, the ones in captivity, they're the bad guys, God got rid of them, now here we are. We get the city, we get the temple. The leading citizens, the king carried off, and now the, the people who are less of nobility rise to the top and claim it for themselves. And they're saying, God has forgotten them, is destroying them. And God says, no. I've scattered my people, but in the midst of having dispersed them abroad, I will beat them a little sanctuary. I will be their protection. I will be their keeper. I will watch over my elect. I will gather them up. 
And so even in God's great discipline, he doesn't remove his love. They are so far from the temple building that God says, I will be to them a little temple. It's not going to be a glorious building like Jerusalem, which caused everyone to look in wonder and awe. But in a hidden way, I will keep my elect and I will preserve them. As God says to us in Psalm 139, there's nowhere we can flee from his presence. Right? There's nowhere we can flee from his presence. Like the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. You know, that's true even in days of discipline, isn't it? When the Lord is chastising us, when he's disciplining us, even then he holds on to his people and is to us a little sanctuary. And all the more in the coming of Jesus, who is God's temple. Who is God's temple. One of the reformers in lecturing on Ezekiel found great comfort in this passage. The days of the Reformation, the church so, the true church, the pure church, so beaten down. He said, God, therefore, although he does not openly exhibit his influence, yet he does not cease to preserve them by a secret power of which in this our age, we have a very remarkable proof. The world indeed thinks us lost, thinks us lost as often as the church is materially injured, and the greater part become very anxious as if God has deserted them. But he says, we remember the promise. God is to the dispersed and cast away a small sanctuary. So that although his hand is hidden, yet our safety proves that he has worked powerfully in our weakness. What a comfort for the persecuted church. What a comfort for the church when she's being disciplined by the hand of God. What a comfort for all those who look to the Lord. To know that our hope does not reside in big buildings and in glorious outward symbols. Our hope is in the Lord God himself. If he's with us, then we have everything. But finally, there's more and more, one more word of hope that follows in chapter 11, verse 17. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, And take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Isn't that glorious? God who brings such a severe discipline as to give his church in the hands of our enemies and to burn down his own temple says, I will yet gather And in bringing you home, I'll do something even greater. I will change your hearts so that you can live with me and I with you. This is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus, isn't it? That Christ on the cross has purchased for us not just a clean record before God, dying for our idolatry, but he's purchased for us the Holy Spirit who gives us new hearts to love God and to seek God. Well, what do we learn from all of this tonight? Number one, the ugliness of sin how offensive our sin is to God. You can paint it with whatever colors you want, but in the end, God sees it and God hates it. God cannot tolerate idolatry. 
If our hope is in the strength of our arms or in our bank accounts and investments, if our hope is in a a person we're trusting in, if our hope, our, our affection is set on something other than the Lord, God sees and God is grieved. And number two, it shows us the seriousness of God's holiness. God is not a trivial God. He's not this modern God that's adjustable. He conforms to you. He's like Plato. You just be what you want to be, and, and God will press against you and be conformed to whatever you want to be. That's not God. God is unchanging in his holiness. And number three, we see here the astounding mercies of God and his covenant faithfulness. What an amazing thing that, that God goes to these links to, to have a temple built and to dwell among his people, and they fill his house with idols, and still he doesn't give up on us. What hope tonight, what hope tonight for us when we think sometimes how disastrous our lives are and our failures for our God, he's faithful, he's faithful to his covenant word, what hope we have, and even when we see some wander from the church, we can pray for them, that God is a God who's able to overcome sin and to rescue, and God will keep his word, that he will have a remnant and he will dwell among them. And finally tonight, we see that all of this is leading to the Lord Jesus. How can any of this come true ultimately, that God can dwell with a sinful people? Well, the answer is the cross of Jesus, right? Only when our guilt is removed, only when the Spirit is purchased and dwells our lives, only ultimately when Jesus Christ comes again and glorifies us. And so God is preparing the way and showing us how much we need Jesus, God with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled before your word. Our sin knows no boundaries. How amazing it is, O oh God, how detestable that we little creatures would, would so diminish your value in our eyes that we would fill your house with idols. How can you be compared to the idols men have invented? How could your glory be exchanged? For such lesser things, worthless things. And yet, Father, we all do that. We set our desires and our love and give our attention and our trust to such trivial things. We worship at the tires of a car. We worship, O oh Lord, at the feet of another person. We worship, O oh Lord, our own pride and ego and reputation. We worship, O oh Lord, our, our own wisdom and thoughts that we can fix it. Oh, Father, teach us to worship you alone. Thank you for bearing with us. Thank you for sending us the Savior we needed. Thank you for rescuing us to yourself forever. We praise you that you are a God who will dwell among men, and you do. In our Lord Jesus, the perfect temple. In his name, hear our prayer. Send us forth with greater gratitude with a greater zeal that the temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ, should be pure, that the temple of our bodies should be pure, that we might be a fit dwelling place for the living God. Purify us, O God, in your mercies, for Jesus' sake. Amen.